0: Back in Philippians today, chapter 1, verses 12 through 18 is the section we're going to be focusing on. And so let me just encourage you to go ahead and get a Bible open there. Uh, And and here's what's happening. Let me just kind of set the stage before we read it. In in this next section, so Paul has just finished his prayer. Uh, He he has finished assuring and demonstrating his affection for the Philippians. And he has his assurance in God's sovereign work in them, his affection for them. And, and his greeting to them. All that's finished up, and now what he's about to do is turn their attention to his circumstance. And it's not because he's a narcissist and needs them to know what's going on with him. It's not like he's writing this letter uh, so that they can uh, know what's happening with him, but so that they can see and gain a further insight, a bigger picture into what's happening. And, and rather than be discouraged, he can encourage them and call them to rejoice. And so I think you'll see that. Uh, unfold as we read and study today. So Philippians 1, 12 through 18 says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known through the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill, The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoiced. Let's pray. Father, help us now. Focus on your word. Learn from your word. I pray that you'd help me in the preaching of your word, and that your people would be Encouraged by it, strengthened by it, emboldened by it, and rejoice as a result of it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul rejoiced in spite of his circumstances. He's not he's not torn down, he's not upset, he's not forlorn and discouraged. And he he is rejoicing in spite of his circumstances, and he wants the Philippians to rejoice with him. And that's why so much of this letter is given to calling them to rejoice. Now, even today we can rejoice. So, so, so Paul is rejoicing. He's wanting the Philippians to rejoice, and even today we can rejoice because what was true for Paul and what's true for the Philippians remains true for us today, in spite of the difficult circumstances we find ourselves in in this fallen world, and there are plenty of them. I, I was having a conversation earlier this week, just, and, and actually I have this conversation quite often with uh, young men who who think that who who tend to. Find their identity in their work, and they go out to do a job, and they find out that it's dissatisfying, it's discouraging, uh, and and then they get frustrated and struggle, and they think that in some way that God's not with them, and and I've had this, this conversation a number of times over the last uh, fourteen years or so. Uh, we work in a fallen world. We we are dealing with a world. We we work in a world that's cursed. That God said it's going to. We're going to earn. Uh, a living by the sweat of our brow, we're going to eat by the sweat of our brow, that it's going to produce thorns and thistles. And so rather than being upset that we go out into a world that's broken and when we work, it doesn't, everything doesn't go the way we want it to, we should be thankful and we should be able to rejoice that anything productive can happen because God is allowing us to, to see productivity and fruit from our efforts, even though we live in a cursed world. We, we live in a fallen world in which difficult circumstances define our very existence. It's the reality of the circumstance we live in the last three or four years is two or three years is, uh, of, of tension and animosity and arguing and infighting within the church and disagreements about what should be done with pandemics and race and racism and, and voting and uh, uh, in politics. All, all these things, that, that there is a ton of brokenness that we live through, a ton of a, a, a lack of peace and a lack of contentment, a lack, lack of satisfaction. And not only do we deal with that in just daily circumstance, we deal with it in relationship. And we deal with conflict. And, and we don't always get along. Our, our, our sin has been dividing us from one another since the very first sin was committed. Adam and Eve, the very first result of them eating the fruit, the very first result that's recorded in Scripture is that they, they realized they were naked and they cover up and they begin to hide from one another. And immediately we see the division develop between Adam and Eve. As a result of their sin, they would be divided from God. But the very first recording, the very first result or consequence, if you will, was a division between Adam and Eve. Go back and look at it. Genesis chapter 3, the very first recorded result of sin was division between us. The very next thing we saw is the division between God and his people. But this division, we live with this level of conflict. We live with conflict all the time. It's it's everywhere. As we've been saved and converted and made holy by God, we have been united together in Christ. And this is something the Bible, especially the New Testament, and even a theme in the book of Philippians speaks of is our unity in Christ. And as we are united in Christ, we are made distinct in the world, and that's, that in and of itself is a, is a source of conflict because we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We, we're here, but we're not the same as those who are not followers of Christ. We have been converted. We, we're, we're different. We're no longer dead in our sins and trespasses. We're no longer children by nature, children of wrath. We are God's children, so we're distinct in the world. That by itself is a, is a source of conflict. Because as we seek to live in light of the scriptures, the world around us would deny the scriptures and the authority of God to command us. But if we're honest, there's a reality that even within the church, there's a, well, conflict is oftentimes the norm. We've been commanded to maintain the peace that we've been given in Christ. We've been called to pursue unity in the spirit, but that doesn't mean it's always happening. We always have this conflict. Now, if we can learn to take hold of the perspective that Paul presents here, uh, uh, that, that he's making known to these Philippians, there's, there's more than one way to look at these difficult circumstances. There's one, more than one way to approach the conflict that we deal with in this life as we purposefully seek to follow Jesus, live in obedience to Jesus, and, and ultimately live our lives to, to see Jesus made famous. <clears throat> rather than discouragement and frustration, rather than being downcast and, and feeling as if God's given up on us or abandoned us or, or, or asking the question, why God? Maybe there's another way to see it, and I think that's what Paul is getting at. He's got this perspective to share in these verses, and that perspective is dependent upon God, but it's also dependent upon the fact that he's in these very difficult situations and circumstances. So his, so his circumstance is this, that Paul's in chains. His commitment to Jesus has landed him in prison, or, or, or at least a house arrest, where he's likely, and this I believe is the most popular perspective, that he's under house arrest, that he's chained to a Roman guard, and through the day, as the shift changes, a different guard comes in and, and changes places with the, the guard that was there before him, and and, and, and Paul is, is being... Um, He's constantly chained to a guard, but that guard is, is changing uh, along the, the way. But don't, he, doesn't, he doesn't soul up. He doesn't throw a fit. He doesn't complain to God. He doesn't shrink back from his perspective or, or shrink back from his purpose of preaching Christ. Instead, he lives boldly and celebrates the others who are encouraged by his boldness to do this because he recognizes that even though he's facing difficult circumstances, even though things aren't working out the way he would want them to, even though the situation isn't what he would want it, and even though he's facing conflict from people that he would probably call brothers and sisters in Christ, he still knows that God is at work. And so this, I think, is the the point of this text and and the the point that Paul would have us draw out of this text. The point of the sermon today is this. We can boldly proclaim... We can boldly proclaim and rejoice at every proclamation of the gospel because through the proclamation of Christ, God will complete his work. We can boldly proclaim and rejoice at every proclamation of the gospel because through the proclamation of Christ, God will complete his work. Paul's perspective was so God-centered, so gospel-centric, that rather than being upset by his circumstances, he was encouraged to see God at work in the midst of these difficult circumstances. He, Paul's convinced; he is absolutely convinced that when God what what God starts, God brings to completion. This wasn't just for the Philippians; it wasn't just for himself. But it was for anyone who would hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and whose lives would be transformed because of the gospel. So you consider this. As Paul's sitting there, chained to these these Roman guards, he's not thinking, oh, woe is me. Oh, it's so terrible. I'm chained to a guard. He's seeing a captive audience. A person in whom there is an opportunity to share the gospel, who, if they will come to believe the gospel... We'll, we'll, we'll see the work of God started in them, and in whom God will finish the work He starts. That's why he, I mean, He had just written this. this this idea, this assurance that God had for the Philippians is the thing. It's the assurance that's the foundation of this whole letter. I am sure of this. This is what it says in verse six of chapter one. You can just look up a little bit further in the text. I'm sure of this that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul's convinced and he's convinced by the sovereignty of God, and so rather than being frustrated with God, he's trusting God in this moment, and he sees this not as a reason to stop sharing the gospel, but to continue an opportunity to continue sharing the gospel. And, and, and this sovereignty, or this confidence in God's sovereignty then motivates not only a commitment to prayer, but a commitment to continue proclaiming the gospel. Paul is convinced that through the preaching of the word, God will accomplish. All he intends to accomplish. He knows this. He, so, so, so Paul, in chapter 3, Paul's going to lay out a resume for us. He's going to show us how, how his life, as it started, he comes from the Jewish faith. He was, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. And in fact, he calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was trained in the law. He knew the scriptures. And so he was familiar with the, with the words of Isaiah, Isaiah fifty five ten through 11 it says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word will always accomplish what God intends it to accomplish. His word will not return void. It will not be put out into the world and and, and not do some work. It's always going to work. It's always going to do uh, what he intends it to do. That's why a lot of times you'll hear me say, I don't know who I stole this from, but I don't know who I stole it from now. I I know it's not original to me, but I kind of claim it now because I can't find where it originally came from. But I'll often say God's word is the word that works. There's power in it. It, it does a work. It, it, it accomplishes what God intends it to accomplish. Now, a lot of times, it doesn't accomplish what we want it to accomplish because we have ideas about what God's Word must do if it's working. But we can know that either by, either by uh, bringing justice to a sinful fallen world or bringing justice and mercy to a redeemed people, God's Word will produce fruit And as a result of the preaching of it and the making known of it, uh, no one, no one will have an excuse. And Paul's convinced of this. I think think we can see across his ministry that he's convinced of this. He wrote in his letter to the Romans, which he wrote likely before he wrote this book of Philippians, he wrote in his letter to the Romans that, that preaching was a necessary component of God's saving work. He had just written in Romans 10, 13, Uh, that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He had just written that. He demonstrated that we confess with our mouth, we believe in our heart, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He he writes this statement with with certainty that God will save anyone who comes to him and calls upon him. But then he immediately asks a series of questions. And beginning in verse 14, he he asks, well, how are they going to call on him in whom they've not believed? And how will they believe if they have not Heard And how will they hear without someone preaching? There's a reality that, God, that, that, that Paul is convinced. He knows, he knows that the preaching of God's word will accomplish what God intended to, to do. The making known of God's word. From the prophet Isaiah, we see that God's word goes out and it will not return void. So when his people stand up to preach it, it will accomplish what God intends it to accomplish. He's convinced of this. And so rather than shrink back because of the conflict or circumstances... He keeps preaching. The certainty is further seen in his last letter to, to his uh, son in the faith, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, he gives Timothy this strong charge, this, this very strong command. Preach the word. Don't go with, with 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 a bunch of opinions. Don't go getting involved in all the all the uh, the debates and the and the and the arguments of the day, the, the, the philosophies developed by man, preach the word. Make it known because Paul is convinced. And so Paul lives this out as, as he is imprisoned and facing conflict from within the church. He is not shrinking back in any way because he is convinced that God will do what he intends to do through his word. That God will accomplish all he intends to do through the preaching of that word. And so he just keeps preaching. Paul's convinced that God's plan A, if you will, his plan A for making the gospel known is by his people proclaiming and practicing it. Now, God, at any moment, God could come down, open the heavens, and speak. He doesn't need us to do this. But for whatever reason, for, you'll have to ask God at some point, I, I don't fully understand. I know that in Ephesians 3, it tells us that God is going to demonstrate his manifold wit- wisdom through the witness of the church. But how that all works out and, how, and what his, his ultimate purposes are and why he chose to do it this way, I, I, don't exa- I can't exactly tell you. I know it's to his glory and to make his wisdom known. But, but over and over, we see Paul demonstrating that, that God intends through his people to make his word known. Uh, We see it in Peter's writings that we were given gifts of speech and gifts of service. We see it in Paul's writing as he speaks about the spiritual gifts to make God's will or or God's word known uh, and and also to to make uh, God's power known among his people. But Paul's convinced that God's plan A for making the gospel known is by his people proclaiming it and practicing it. So Paul's convinced of these things. He knows these things. And so rather than see this circumstance as a reason to quit, a reason to give up, a reason to doubt God or question God, he boldly proclaims. And when he faces the conflict and and recognizes that that there's people out there that want him to stay in prison and would rather have his ministry and and rather, rather have the opportunities that they thought he had and to try to take from him, Rather than be upset with him, he rejoices when they proclaim the gospel. And that's why I say that I think the point of this passage that we can draw from it, the principle that we can draw from this, is that we can boldly proclaim and rejoice at every proclamation of the gospel. We can boldly proclaim the gospel. We can rejoice at every proclamation of the gospel because through the proclamation of Christ, God will complete his work. Now, Paul doesn't deny the difficulty. He isn't ignoring or downplaying that there's hardship that comes with this. He's not pretending that there's not a cost to to pursuing this lifestyle. In fact, he's going to continue to demonstrate that it's really just part of it and, and that they are very real. But there is nothing in this world that can keep God from doing his work when his people get busy doing the very thing he's left us here to do. Boldly proclaim the gospel. So that's really where we're going to start now, is, or turn to now, is really look at that first thing that we can do as a result of the circumstances we live in, boldly proclaim the gospel. Say, so like Paul, we can proclaim the gospel with the, the same confidence he had. We don't have to be Paul to be convinced of the fact that God is going to do a work through his word, that the church is God's plan A for the expression of the gospel. We don't have to be Paul to be convinced that what God starts, he finishes Every one of us have had some experience with God that we trust him for these things. and Some of us are more confident and others are growing into that confidence, but we can be confident in this. And as a result, we can boldly proclaim the gospel. Over the last 30 years or so of following Jesus and seeking to live with his mission in mind, I've learned a lot of lessons. I've learned a lot of things and I've grown and matured in a lot of ways. I came to faith in, in Christ as an adult, I was about 20 years old, and about 25, 26, this, God began to do this work that radically transformed me. And I grew from infancy and began to grow into maturity, and that process has continued to, 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 to progress. But I've, I've learned a lot of lessons, and, and, and one of those lessons is that every time we seek to live... In such a way that boldly proclaims and practices the gospel, that boldly makes the that, that we seek to be bold, and that we seek to make our lives about making Jesus known, we can always come up with reasons not to do it that sound really good to us and to others, and that we 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 all use them. We we've all used them likely at some point or other. Uh, maybe in, uh, I've heard them in evangelism classes, I've used them, but, but the reason we often don't evangelize is the cost is too high. It, it just costs too much. And, and I don't mean financial costs, although that it may be that, because maybe if you evangelize the way we're talking about and the way Paul sets the example for, maybe, maybe that means you can't keep a job or you lose a job. I'll never forget when my boss, uh, I, don't, I don't know if he was serious in the moment, I I assume he was, but when he told me, if you go on this mission trip, don't come back. That's, that's a big choice. That cost is high. Uh, loss of a relationship. Maybe it's not financial. Maybe it's relational. You lose a relationship. You're, you're rejected because you're proclaiming the gospel to someone who, at least in that moment, is not ready to hear it. It's always interesting to me because we automatically assume that the person we're why don't we assume they're waiting for somebody to tell us? Why, why do we always assume we're going to lose a relationship rather than see a relationship grow and flourish? The gospel has as much opportunity to, to, to do something positive in a person's life as us fa- facing the negative. But we, we often use this excuse that the cost is too high. We use the excuse that I don't know enough. What if someone asks me a question that I can't answer? Isn't isn't evangelizing and proclaiming God's word, isn't that for the professionals, for the seminary trained, for those who, who, have, who have spent their life learning and studying? If you know enough to believe in Jesus, you know enough to proclaim Jesus. And maybe you don't have all the answers. Maybe you, may, may, maybe you can't, can't, can't tell someone every little uh, uh, issue that comes up or you can't, you can't settle every con, uh um, conflicting idea for, to, to satisfy someone. But I think that ultimately just reveals why grace is so necessary anyway. In, in fact, in some ways, I think this idea that not knowing enough really is, is another, it's another way in which the cost is too high because we're afraid that our image will be strained or, or challenged when we don't appear to be what we want to be. That people perceive us as not knowing as much as we'd like them to think. So so the cost is high because we don't know enough. Time and family commitments. As if we can't prioritize proclaiming the gospel in our daily rhythms. Not not all of us are called to get up and go around the world and go overseas. Not all of us are called to, to, to go to another place in the United States. Not all of us are called to to quit jobs and vocations and, 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 and follow uh, uh, a vocational ministry in, in their life. Not all of us are called to that. But the call to make disciples belongs to every Christian. In everything, from evangelizing door to door in Springfield, to planting a church in Springfield, to telling people about Jesus on four different continents. I have over and over made these excuses. And I have heard others make these excuses and seek to justify themselves because they just don't have enough time and space. They just don't know enough. They're not quite ready. The cost is too high. But the call to make disciples belongs to every last Christian. Every single one of us. I'll never forget the first mission trip that I took into China. Um, I, I was told, and this by, by people who uh, knew, knew us fairly well, but I, I was told, you're a husband and a father. You, you shouldn't go. What happens if you get arrested and you get stuck there? There's too much risk. And I was naive. I didn't know what, really what I was saying, but my answer, kind of in sar- sarcasm more than anything, my answer was based on Paul and Silas in the, in the book of Acts, chapter 16, actually in the jail in Philippi uh paul and silas sang a song and so i was like well i guess i'll sing a song i would hope that the prison doors would fall open and but but i never got arrested so i never had the opportunity but if i had listened to that voice i wouldn't have gone to china and i wouldn't have gotten to meet the people and see god do the work that he did through our efforts in short-term mission trips in china Every trip we've led to Africa, every last trip that we've led to Africa, I know personally for the ones that I've led, but I also have heard stories from those that I've not gone on, there have been real reasons that come up in people's lives not to go. There's always reasons. We always face something come up that says, it's unwise for you to go. You shouldn't go. If we're thinking of things from a very worldly perspective and not a God-centered perspective. We faced that decision. Probably the biggest one we faced was two years ago, March 2020, whenever COVID is new, nobody knows what's going on. Uh they're locking everything down, and we're we're like, well, we've got to go. Um and so th- there was no clear door closing the way for us, and so we went. Got there, and the team wasn't able to come because travel restrictions were put in place that we couldn't overcome. But Matt Whitaker from Boulevard. And I were there, and we wrestled, what do we do now? And we made the decision, the best thing for us to do is we're here. Let's go make the gospel known. But repeatedly, we're faced with the challenges. Shouldn't you just find a way home? Even in this most recent trip to Montana, there, there were things that cropped up that before we went, that looked like, oh, maybe, maybe, maybe something's going to happen. We shouldn't go. After arriving home, half of our team, three out of the six people that went, are sick. Two of them have tested positive for COVID. Uh, I have tested a lot and tested negative every time, but I've been sick with the same exact symptoms. But I think, and I haven't talked to everyone about this, but I think this is true based on the reactions of the team as we were coming back and having conversation. I think every one of them, knowing what we know now, that we'd come back and get sick... Because of our time there, I think every one of them would still pick the going option. They would still go because they know what God did in and through us while we were there. But again, the thing is, we don't all have to get up and go across these go, go anywhere to boldly proclaim the gospel. We're members together of a church committed to gospel ministry and gospel mission right here where we at, where we're at. We exist. Because of the gospel. This is on all of our paperwork. It's out there on our sign. It's on our website. It's all over the place. We exist because of the gospel. We are who we are and we do what we do because of the gospel. And in that, we recognize that our primary responsibility as God's people is to live a life that glorifies Him, to worship Him in everything that we do. So we live to God's glory, worship. And we recognize that our primary responsibility in doing that is leading others to worship, leading others to see the glory of God so that they can turn and worship, believer and unbeliever alike. Because unbelievers need to be reminded as much as believers do. And inside of believers' homes, there's unbelievers. That's why we emphasize so much, emphasize the, the gospel ministry and gospel mission. It doesn't start out there, but it starts in our homes. In our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our our rhythms of life at our workplaces, and in our moms' and dads' groups, and in our, our, our activities that we do, we can proclaim Christ. There's no reason we shouldn't be proclaiming Christ. There's no reason we shouldn't be making Him known. Every reason that we can come up with not to proclaim the Word of God does not originate with God, but it originates with us. Springfield is a city full of religion, but light on gospel. And God has planted us right here in this city to make the gospel known, to bring light to the gospel for people who are religious, for Christians who are discouraged, for non-Christians who don't know him yet. Christians need to be reminded and encouraged and, and, and strengthened by the grace of God and the gospel. And the growing number of non-Christians need to be confronted with the gospel. And the people in your home are the very first place that gets to start. Whether it's your children or your spouse. I can tell you that in my, own, in, in my home, that my wife is really good. She's not always welcomed immediately. But she is really good to remind me of the gospel. To be strengthened by the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be bold about proclaiming. We can be bold about proclaiming this. Will being committed to gospel ministry always be easy? Absolutely not. Will we face difficulty because there will be a cost to it? Absolutely there will be. But the message of the gospel cannot be stopped by our personal circumstances. The message of the gospel cannot be stopped by our personal circumstances. Paul's detractors thought they could stop him in his work. Look at it in verse 12. Look here. They think, oh, we'll, get him. we'll put him in prison. That'll silence him. That'll, that'll stop him from doing his work. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What was being done to him to stop his work, to stop the gospel, actually advanced it. We cannot overcome, we cannot uh, uh, stop, we cannot hold back God's gospel work. <laughs> What level of arrogance does it require for us to think that in some way we could stop God from doing what he intends to do? Paul's personal circumstance actually provided more opportunity for the gospel to go somewhere where it hadn't yet gone. The whole imperial guard would hear about Jesus. Our personal circumstances, the things that we're experiencing, cannot stop the gospel from going out and accomplishing all that God intends to accomplish through it. If we'll just make the gospel known, if we'll just boldly proclaim the gospel wherever we are, whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, regardless of what's happening around us horizontally, if we will be bold about proclaiming the gospel, God's going to do his work through the gospel. Again, not all of us need to get up and go around the world. Not all of us need to be imprisoned. Not like all of us will need to be martyrs, people whose lives are taken because we commit so boldly to, to, to boldly proclaim Christ. But in some way, we're all going to feel it. In some way, as we step out to follow God, to boldly proclaim the gospel, to, to, to not, to, to not to shrink back, to not decide to commit to some other message, we'll, we'll feel it. But when we look at it from Paul's perspective, when we value Jesus so highly, when we are so God-centric, when we recognize that through the gospel is the power of God unto life, when we believe those things so fully, our personal circumstance, we'll recognize our personal circumstance does not equate to stopping gospel progress. And in addition to that, the message of the gospel cannot be silenced by political Persecution. The message of the gospel cannot be silenced by political persecution. Paul's conflict wasn't directly with the Roman government at this point, although those who sought to stop him from doing his work were using the systems of government against him. And so he's imprisoned by the imperial guard. He's, he's under watch of this uh, um, imperial guard. He, he was imprisoned because he wouldn't stop preaching the gospel. But no matter how much political power they exerted against him, Paul kept preaching the gospel. As a result, we see it in verse 13, the whole imperial guard heard and everyone came to know that Paul was in chains, not because of Rome's power, not because of the conflict that he was facing from others within the church, but because he was committed to preaching Christ. You might be able to chain a message. I'm sorry, you might be able to chain the messenger. You might be able to put the messenger in chains. But you cannot chain this message. Nothing can stop it. There's no power on earth. There's no political party. There's no political power. There's no system of power that can stop this message from going forward. All we've got to do is preach it. It is actually a, a, a quote, a famous quote from Spurgeon in which he is talking about a lion. Uh, and it, we often simplify the quote and, and minimize it down. But I wanted you to hear it. He, he shared it at least three times in three different sermons. I wanted, to he, I, I wanted to share with you this morning just his perspective on this and what he has to say about letting a lion defend itself and letting the gospel defend itself. He, he writes this. The best way to spread the gospel is to spread the gospel. So if you're looking for methodology to spread the gospel... The best methodology is spread the gospel. I believe the best way of defending the gospel is to spread the gospel. He says a few things, and we, we're going to skip past what, what he says there, but essentially it's uh, uh, when we're so busy uh, defending the gospel, it's because we often are not preaching the gospel. But, but he goes on, he says, Suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, a full-grown king of beasts. There he is in the cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight him. Well, I should suggest to them, if they would not object and feel that it was humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself, and the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. He goes on, I didn't share this part of the quote on the notes, but he goes on, let me just read it for you, never mind about defending Deuteronomy or the whole of the Pentateuch, We don't have to answer every question. We don't have to come up with with quick, uh, uh, composed and, and refined answers for every question that a person could ask. Never mind about defending Deuteronomy or the whole of the Pentateuch. Preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Let the lion out and see who will dare to approach Him. The lion of the tribe of Judah will soon drive away all his adversaries. This was how Christ's first disciples worked. They preached Jesus Christ wherever they went. They did not stop to apologize, but, to boldly, but boldly bore their witness concerning him. Let the gospel out. The best way to spread the gospel is spread the gospel. Not our methods, not our methodologies, but preach Christ crucified and resurrected. The best way to defend the gospel is... Preach the gospel. As I've thought about this over the years, I've realized the the only thing that can stop the gospel is God's people no longer sharing the gospel. Now I praise God that at every time and in in every age He has raised up people to make certain that the gospel continues being proclaimed. That's why we're here. You just consider this: if at some point in the last two thousand years since the life of Jesus Christ. If he, had, if he had allowed the gospel proclamation to cease, why would any of us be believing? But because God's people throughout the centuries, throughout all these generations of Christians, God has always raised up people in among his people to preach the gospel. We can now know the gospel. Imagine. Imagine what it would look like if all of God's people who were growing up and coming to know Christ and learning more about Him, got busy boldly proclaiming this gospel, recognizing that their personal circumstances and that the power that comes against them as a result of their proclamation couldn't stop it. I praise God that He continues to raise people up to make the gospel known in the world, and and I pray I pray that he would embolden us as a church, not because he needs us to make the gospel known. He could do it without us, but because there's great joy to be had in us getting serious about living a life that boldly proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ, a life given to the glory of God, leading others to worship as they see the glory of God. What a life that is. We can boldly proclaim the gospel. Second, we can rejoice at every proclamation of the gospel. We can rejoice at every proclamation of the gospel. It's easy to assume here that Paul's persecution was the result of those outside the church. And and we know that he dealt with that. We know that there was people that, that were not Christians, that were were pursuing him and causing problems for him. We know that there were, there, there were people outside the church from the Jewish tradition that stood opposed to him, and he would go into these towns and these villages these cities, and he would preach Christ, and they'd come behind him, and they would add to his message and seek to cause problems. That's the Judaizers. But here in Philippians, it appears that the conflict he's referring to is with other Christians, with other pre- people who are actually preaching Christ. Not false teachers to be denounced, but Christian preachers who are selfish. And it was actually, I, I, I struggled with this because it's not a, it's, there's, there's not agreement here, but it was actually J.M. Boyce that helped me kind of discern some of this. And, and I, I don't have this quote on the screen for you, I don't have, I, I can share it with you later, but in his comments on this passage, he writes, if we are to receive the full impact of Paul's experiences in Rome, we must recognize that it was Christians who were trying to get Paul into trouble by their preaching. Some commentators have found this truth difficult to accept or have sought to dodge it by arguing that ones who preached Christ out of strife and envy were non believers or Judaizers. It will not do to call the troublemakers unbelievers. These people were Christians. They were not anti Christ, they were anti Paul. But they were anti Paul. With a vengeance, And he works through and he lays out a number of different historical evidences. There's no way I could go back and share them all with you. But he comes to this conclusion. He says this, The lines of evidence seem to present a remarkably consistent picture. They suggest that after Paul had written Philippians, the strife and jealousy already present in the church at Rome degenerated into open attacks on him. These may have led some of the Christians to denounce Paul to the authorities. In this case... Christ's statement that his disciples would betray one another in Matthew 24.10 would have an early and literal fulfillment. This is shocking. Because as Paul comes to the conclusion of, of this little section here, he says in verse 18, I will rejoice. Because Christ is proclaimed by these people who are proclaiming out of envy, selfish ambition. We can rejoice at every proclamation of the gospel because where Christ is proclaimed, God will and can work. In spite of the division, we're still seeing believers come to know Jesus. You think about this. The gospel continued to spread to the point that even though, in the midst of decision, the division, early on in the church, and, and I think sometimes we read Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, and, and we look at that quite often in our church, because there's some foundational principles, I think, that get laid out there. But, but we, I think we idealize that. And we think, oh man, that's, that's what it's going to look like. That's what the church is supposed to be. And in some ways, I think that is what the church should look like. But I think we imagine that the church was perfect without flaw for a long, long time. But it's not very far. Acts chapter 2 is sharing this time where, where people are sharing a, no needs are among them, and every need that is being met. But in Acts chapter 6, we begin to see the first. Uh, inkling or the first indication of division, where the Hebraic Jews and the and the he- Hellenist Jews are uh, widows. I'm sorry, the Hebraic widows and the Hellenist widows they they're, they're at odds with one another because they think that they're being treated differently. But it didn't even wait for the church to be planted or the church to begin to begin to see this. What I've called partisan religious practice. So we can rejoice at every, every um, proclamation of the gospel because the message of the gospel advances even through partisan religious practices. I think the first, one, the first one that comes to mind or came to mind as I was studying and reading through this, the first one that I thought of was the apostles being corrected by Jesus. Luke chapter 9, 49 through 50. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. He's not with us. We We should stop him from doing that. This is Jesus' response. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. It's the message of the gospel that unites us. And it's the proclamation of that message that that breaks through any partisan religious practices and any division that we can come up with in and among the church. So then we have the example of Acts chapter 6, and the church continues. We have the example of Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 15 where where Paul and Barnabas have such a strong disagreement that they cannot do ministry together, that they have to divide and go separate places. And so Barnabas goes to Crete and I think Paul goes to Ephesus. And, And from those two places, God does a mighty work in both and through both of them. And it continued on even today. You just think about the the history of religion, just in the United States, where Presbyterians and Methodists used to argue, uh, where Jonathan Edwards, who originally was a, a Reformed and a Reformed Methodist, had had to come out of that and, and break away from that. There's all kinds of indications or examples of it. Denominations, the number of denominations, all dividing over secondary, even tertiary, sometimes quad and. Quint- I don't know how to say those words, but they're, they're issues that are so far separated from the preaching of the gospel and the work of God in the essential doctrines of the faith. We've got hundreds of denominations today. Public arguments against well-known Christian leaders. I think that's one of the most discouraging things that I've, I've, I've seen over this last couple of years is over social and governmental issues, not doctrinal issues, not gospel issues. We have formed tribes among solidly doctrinally solid teachers. And we've begun to doubt the commitment of making the gospel known because someone doesn't say enough about some hot-button social Issue. somebody doesn't call out homosexuality enough somebody doesn't call out critical race theory enough somebody doesn't use those words and, 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 and there's a whole tribe of people that get upset because they don't use those words specifically and then others get upset because they're upset and we begin to call out God's teachers as heretics not because they've preached some false doctrine but because they've not done something we'd want them to do on some social issue. Just this week, I I, I was watching a debate go between a couple of, uh, well, it actually ended up being several people. It was out on Facebook, and it's a couple of pastors that I'm connected to eventually, or originally the ones that shared it, calling out Doug Wilson and and warning people of following Doug Wilson. Now, I'll say this. There's a lot of things I don't, Agree with Doug Wilson about uh, the, theonymous perspectives. Uh, the The job of the church to go and form and shape government, and exercise dominion by ruling with authority. I, I don't. I think that that's a, 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 I don't think it's a healthy doctrine. I don't think it's a good doctrine. But I don't think it's heresy. I think there's people within the church that hold it. There's a lot of things I disagree with him about, but there's some very important things that I agree with him on. <laughs> the only way to salvation is through Christ crucified and resurrected. Jesus is God in flesh. The Trinity. Um, These essential doctrines, we agree upon. And so while I don't follow Doug Wilson, I'm not pointing a bunch of people to Doug Wilson. I know people that follow him and listen to him and appreciate him. And I don't don't see any need to turn around and say, oh, 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 you got to quit listening. He's a heretic. There's a lot of things I don't agree with Tim Keller about Matt Chandler, David Platt, ways in which they've acted in this season of social justice that, that I would call into question. But as I have listened to their teaching and continue to, to seek to, to discern whether or not they are people, they are false teachers or not, not one of them, not one of them have spoken against Christ crucified or any of the essential doctrines of the faith. They have simply done things that make me a little uncomfortable because they're unwilling to say some things I think should be said. Just think about all the conflict that exists in the church today. And imagine if the gospel quit moving, quit going forward, quit advancing, at what point, if, 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 if our division, if our, partisan, if our partisan religious practice was able to stop the gospel, we would have lost the gospel long before it came to us. I don't want us to celebrate the division that's in the church. I don't want us to, to ignore it. I don't want us to celebrate it. It's the result of sin in our lives. I want us to look forward to the day in which all that division is gone because every member of the body of Christ is standing around his throne, no longer worried about the philosophies of religious practice in this day, but looking at our Savior face to face. There will be people there that didn't denounce CRT. There will be people there That got angry because people didn't denounce CRT. Because we are all preaching the same Christ. Let's rejoice in spite of our constantly falling short of this. That the gospel advances in spite of our sin and the division it creates among us. That's what Paul's doing here. He's not ignoring the fact that that people have brought this against him. He's not ignoring the fact that these are negative motives. He's not ignoring the fact that conflict exists. He's, just, he's, he's celebrating the thing that's still there to be celebrated. Christ is proclaimed. So rather than running around angry about everybody doing it different than we would want them to, let's celebrate the fact that God's people are still making Him known. Rejoice in it. Let me, let me just warn you. That as soon as you begin to be the one pointing a finger at someone saying, and I learned, this is another lesson I've learned myself. When we first planted the church, I was asked, why plant the church? Why, 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 why? I was, was people seeking to discourage me. There's not a need for another church in Springfield. Why would you do this? And I felt compelled to give them the answer. The answer I gave them was, oh, this is wrong. This is wrong. And I was talking about the bride of Christ. And I was pointing my fingers at them. And one day God confronted me with the fact that our church isn't perfect either. I'm not perfect either. And I'm not doing it all right either. We're not doing it all right either. So who are we? Who am I? Who are you? To stand up and point fingers at the bride of Christ when we could be rejoicing the fact that through a broken people, the gospel of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed. We can rejoice at every proclamation of Christ because the message of the gospel uh, uh, advances even through partisan religious practice. And we can rejoice at every proclamation of the gospel because the message of the gospel advances even when proclaimed with prideful intent. Paul calls out envy. They were envious of him. They longed for his platform. They wanted his influence. They wanted his results. He called out strife, that there was this animosity that had developed. Selfish ambition, they were wanting to promote themselves. Have any of us ever struggled or not struggled with those things? At what point have we ever done anything from a pure motive? Now, I want to make the distinction. I want to make a distinction here. Paul's not, Paul's not ignoring the doctrines, I mean, he's talking about they're proclaiming Christ. He's not ignoring false doctrine. So so we know that in Galatians, he called out false doctrines. Anybody comes and preaches a different gospel to you, let him be a curse. Let him be anathema. He is not one of us. He is not with us. Right? So he makes the distinction in the letter to the Galatians and now the letter to the Philippians. There is a difference between false doctrine and bad motives. We don't celebrate these false motives. We We don't encourage them. We don't deny them. It causes great problems, great hurt. Uh, it's, it's possible even that, that Paul was uh, executed eventually because of these accusations that were coming against him. It's possible that this, we don't know exactly, but history seems to, to lean that way. It's, it certainly causes a lot of pain. It's emotionally difficult. It hurts a lot of people. But we can rejoice that even in the midst of it, God's gospel can't be stopped. It still advances. It still goes. In the world we live today, this this attitude, this way of approaching things, it's going to set us out to be criticized and ridiculed. We won't be fundamentalists enough for the fundies, and we won't be progressive enough for the progressives. But I don't even think that's the, 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 the paradigm we're supposed to be measuring ourselves on. In Christ, and as a result of his gospel, we're on a whole different level. No longer left here to argue between fundamentalism and progressivism and all those things, but to make Jesus known, because the gospel is the power of God unto life. But as a result of that, we will be criticized. So though there's a lot of things I disagree with Tim Keller on, I can rejoice that in his ministry and through his ministry, there have been a number of people reached. Even though there's a number of things I, with the gospel of Jesus Christ, even, even though there's a number of th- things that I disagree with, with Doug Wilson on, I can rejoice that even through his ministry, there is a number of people being reached. I would hope that though there's a number of things they disagree with me on, they disagree with you on, that they would still rejoice that through this ministry, God's people are being encouraged by the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those who don't know him yet are coming to know that God is still in the business of saving people because we're out boldly proclaiming the cross of Jesus Christ. Rather than join in all the infighting, rather than being a part of all the causing of trouble for other gospel preachers or repaying others for what they might do to us, I would say we're better off to rejoice at every proclamation Of the gospel. Again, I think J.M. Boyce was helpful here. He writes this I know that someone is going to object. Oh, but that is hard. First, you say we are to rejoice when people preach the gospel, even if they do it in a nasty way and try to hurt other Christians. You say that we are to think of them for the sake of God's work within them. Then you say that we are not to be like that ourselves. That is unreasonable. Or do we go against all that is most natural within us? In the context of our conversation in, our, in this sermon, I think the answer is obvious, but maybe it's not always that obvious. Yes, you are. That is God's way. And God will give you the strength to do it. Look, we don't want to ignore bad motives. We can call them out, but we don't want to reject one another for them. Because if we reject others for false motives and bad motives, then what does that reveal about us? We, we don't ignore the things that divide us. We need to challenge each other. We need to have these conversations. We need to be listening to the voices of those prophetic voices of, of, uh, that, that, are, that are saying, hey, we can't lose these doctrines. And we need to be listening to those missional voices that are saying, but we've got to take the gospel to people that aren't, exactly like us we we got to figure out how to bring the gospel to them we got to have those missional prophetic and, and and pastoral voices we need them all we don't want to ignore the things that divide us but but we, we we'd rather sh- sharpen one another challenge one another rather than dividing taking up cause against one another sit down and have conversation with each other rather than arguing over facebook about what preachers you should listen to and shouldn't listen to why don't you just shut off Facebook and quit listening to it all and sit down and have a conversation with a person that lives next door? That's another conversation for another time. And doing this, all the while doing this, rejoicing the gospel is still moving and advancing in spite of the flaws of all its messengers. See, not only can you not chain this message, not only can you not stop it or silence this message, when God's people make it known, it will be made known, and it will accomplish what God intends it to. But when it is being made known, that is reason to rejoice. Not find flaw with the person who made it known. Because I can guarantee you, every one of us, as we proclaim the gospel, can have flaws pointed out in us. So, <laughs> we can boldly proclaim the gospel. And we can rejoice in every proclamation of the gospel. Because through the proclamation of Christ, God will complete his work. This is God's plan to bring the gospel to the world. So we as a church, let me just encourage you, since this is who we are, to, because of the gospel, live for the glory of God by boldly proclaiming the gospel, rejoicing as a result at every proclamation of the gospel so that together we can live our worship out loud to lead others to worship and see the glory of God and join us in worshiping him. Let's pray.